there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. Nat, we are back after a two-week hiatus on our side of recording. That <laughs> made you think. I know. It's kind of weird. We were joking about in the, the bonus material how odd it is to go for a couple of weeks without recording one. I feel very out of shape. I feel like I haven't gotten to ramble on for hours at a time in a while. I miss it. So excited to be back. Yeah, it's funny. Like in normal life, people don't really listen to you uh, banter for two hours. They usually don't take well for it with uh, with being asked to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> But, they, they don't do that for you? I, no, unfortunately not. People always love it when I do that, I think. <laughs> no? No, usually not. It's usually like it's only with dinners uh, where it's with you or with a select other group of people <laughs> who are willing to go down these rabbit holes that we go on. And of course, our listeners uh, somehow tolerate us doing this. So yeah, it's great to be back. Well, the, the trick is to have enough wine that you don't care that they don't want you to ramble on for two hours. That I think is the that's the dinner party solution to that problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess we should have mentioned drinking wine is a prerequisite to listening to a Made You Think episode. <laughs> it is. And to recording one, depending on the time of day we're recording it. We're, this one's a little early, I think, for a wine episode. I'm sticking with the mushroom coffee today. But if we had started at you know, five or six, it would have it would have been a wine episode. Yeah, exactly. But um, the book we're doing today, in case you couldn't tell from the title, is The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. Camus, right? Or Camus? Camus. Camus. Okay. All right. I was going to say the other word I was probably going to mispronounce at some point during this uh, episode is Sisyphus. There's a good chance I'll say syphilis at some point. So. <laughs> <laughs> is that why you had to leave last week? Is the, you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was doing in London. Um, enough about that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the cool philosophers had syphilis. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, we're nothing if not philosophers. So <laughs> exactly. Remarkably curable now. I don't think they even test for it anymore because I think if you take antibiotics pretty much any time within a 30 year period, then you'll be fine. So it's hard to imagine someone going 30 years without taking antibiotics. Yeah, that would be a, a very cruel joke of a strong immune system. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that would be the worst is if you're like strong antibiotics. You're like, no, they're terrible for you. I don't want to take them. I'm going to let my body naturally fight off diseases. And then you die of syphilis. 30 years later, you go insane because of syphilis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> this book is, I guess... Maybe not about syphilis. Not about sure. syphilis. Um, no. So, yeah, I heard about this book through uh, a listener of the podcast, actually. We were talking about a friend and a listener of the podcast. We were talking about, like, the rash of suicides that's been happening, you know, just among certain people. So this was specifically after the Anthony Bourdain suicide. And we were just, we just got into, like, a little bit of a philosophical discussion. And he mentioned this book. And I just have never had never read it. So uh, I just looked at like the summary and it seemed that it's on the same topic and really sort of dives into effectively. I mean, I agree with his point that this is really the fundamental question of, of philosophy and of life, right? If if there's no meaning to life, which we'll get into, is life even worth living, right? And, and I thought that was intriguing enough to uh, call for a Made You Think episode. Well, and it's sort of when we say fundamental, it is the base question that everything else must stem from. Right. Because if the answer to the question is not yes, then none of ethics, metaphysics, whatever else matter. Right. And it's it's interesting too. I mean, it's 
or it's interesting to think about from two angles too, right? One is if you're alive, does it make sense to continue living? As a conscious choice. Yeah, as a conscious choice, right? Like, you know, should you keep living or should, you know, or is suicide the rational choice, right? Right. And two, what does it mean for child rearing, right? Because mm. there is that, what's it called? I think uh, antinatalism. So people who are against having children because they think it's bad to like they think that life is fundamentally suffering and so living is kind of definitionally bad and so you should avoid creating more life because then you're bringing more suffering into the world yeah i've heard that is, i think sort of the crux of their argument yep and I, I think that this relates to that a lot as well yeah and i also Which thought that a, oh go ahead well, i was just gonna say like antinatalism in general it seems like such a strange philosophy to have because it seems very anti-skin in the game, because if you truly believe that, then why haven't you committed suicide? Right. Well, it's funny. He calls he calls that out in, yeah. in the book. <laughs> <laughs> the whole like first section where he's naming all these different philosophers, and it's like, yeah, these people are all alive. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I thought this was increasingly relevant where, I mean, we've talked about this theme in a few other a few other books, namely I'd say the Sapiens series. Beginning of Infinity, Daniel Dennett's book, um, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. So it's come up in a bunch of the different books that we've covered where I think like the fundamental thing that all these books really agree on is that humans are not really anything special, uh, that we are just sort of like, you know, one sort of absurdity of of evolution. Yeah. <laughs> and we're just the result of that. Like there's no necessarily cosmic significance to uh, humanity. And if that is the case, then what does anything mean? And that can cause hopelessness for a lot of people. And I think that's what Camus here is trying to really address is if that is, if that is the case, which seems to be the case that, you know, there's no necessarily cosmic significance to humanity, then is life still worth living? Right. So yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the theme here. And there's not really a particularly linear. No. Exploration of it. It's, it's almost like four little essays, Actually, he calls the whole thing an essay. He calls the whole thing an essay? Yeah, so this was a... Like, I think it was published as a book, but originally it was considered an essay. And I think it was from 1942. And then it was published as a book in, like, 55 or something. Is Camus the one who didn't publish any of his own stuff and it was found after his death and then somebody else published it? Mm, Maybe. Let me check Wikipedia. It was one of those French guys. We still need our own Jamie who can do this, like Joe Rogan. Yeah, we really do. Let's see. No, I think he... Okay, I'm thinking of someone else. I think he published... Yeah, he published these while he was still living. All right. And he was friends with all these, uh, with a lot of the postmodernists. Got it. Well, bonus made you think points to anyone who can figure out which uh, French philosopher I'm thinking of. Because I know it's one of them. <laughs> That's interesting. So was that done on purpose? Like, did he think that his work was not good enough or was just not worth being published? Or, like, do you remember or no? I... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it was kind of like an insecurity and he was going to just burn it all at his death. Mm. But then somebody basically ignored his last will and took his works and published them. Maybe it was some of Camus' work or some of Kafka's work. I can't remember who it was. Oh, Kafka was definitely... I I think Kafka published in his lifetime as well, but he was definitely insecure about his writing. So No, okay, yeah, it is Kafka. Few of his works were published during his lifetime, uh, his unfinished works were ordered to be destroyed by his friend, 
when he died who ignored his friend's direction and published them after Kafka's death. Yep. Okay, so it was Kafka. Yeah. Which Kafka is, uh, which we'll get to, I think, towards the end, but Kafka is very related to what this book is talking about. Yeah, because he, he kind of directly preceded Camus. He would have been like one of the main or big philosophical influences at the time. Have you read anything else by Camus? Like, have you read The Stranger? I have not. I read like the first few pages in French when I was living in France trying to learn the language, but that's about as much as I've read. Nice. Well, I read it last year and... It's good. Uh... It's one of those books that you know is like, it's good. Uh, like, I can't say it's not good. It was like, I finished it. It was entertaining, but I like, I hated the main character. Oh, okay. But after reading this, it actually makes a lot more sense huh. because he was, his character was the absurd man, like to a T, which I, I don't want to like give any plot spoilers here. So I'll just leave it at that. But his, <laughs> his character was, the main character was, uh, just like there was no goal for the main character <laughs> um, which makes a lot more sense now after reading this like i think maybe if i went back and reread the book i might actually enjoy it more just un- understanding like the underlying philosophy that kemu had going into writing it got it so i mean i wouldn't say it's like a must read book or anything but it, it was it has an interesting premise and if you're into that type of thing or or if you find this essay interesting then it might be worth worth checking out the novel so yeah, it's broken up into four sections, uh, which, as you said, are kind of their own little essays. So it starts off with an absurd reasoning, uh, and then the absurd man, absurd creation, and then finally the myth of Sisyphus. So they're not really linear necessarily, but we can start with the first one. Yeah, I think we can move through them linearly, but without you know expecting that there will be a entirely coherent flow between them. Yeah, it's certainly not mastery. By Robert Greene. No. <laughs> it's sort of like the gold standard that we always point to. It's a purely <laughs> linear, like, step-by-step book. Yep. <laughs> but one, one distinction that he does make here at the outset is that the topic of suicide is usually talked about as kind of a social phenomenon and as a pure bad, like something that's like, oh, okay, you know, how do we prevent this, right? And what he's trying to do here, which I get the suspicion maybe wasn't as discussed at the time maybe it was it could be wrong but he says that we're concerned here with the relationship between individual thought and suicide so it's a very you know personal exploration on whether or not it makes sense for the individual right and i mean i guess we i don't know i don't think we have to make any kind of disclaimer about this but it it's a little odd to talk about in this format right and probably a little odd for him to write about. Maybe he didn't think it was odd. But I think there is generally like a taboo around discussing suicide in any kind of potentially positive or potentially like potentially even be construed as pro light. Right. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Yeah, because I I know there's there's some statistics. I'm not you know 100 percent sure how rigorous they are, but that public discussion of suicide increases suicide rates, or even reporting of suicides. Yeah, reporting on it can increase it. And I think there was a Freakonomics podcast episode on it, and it was fairly compelling data. Although to be fair, they're not super rigorous with their data a lot of the time. But <laughs> <laughs> it you know I think that's what probably makes some of these types of explorations hard is that there is sort of a 
taboo against discussing the topic. I mean, I don't know. I, I even feel a little weird bringing it up in a like, hey, let's seriously talk about whether or not we should kill ourselves discussion, right? Right. There's definitely like a natural. There's an there's an aversion to it, but it would be extra awkward if his conclusion was that you should go kill yourself. <laughs> that would be much worse. Maybe we should just say that at the outset: is that the conclusion is that you shouldn't. Right. His conclusion is that none of the arguments that he examines are convincing. You know, to argue that you should actually kill yourself. Yeah. So from that sense, it's an argument against suicide. This entire essay. Right. Yeah, it brings to mind, though, what you were just saying brings to mind, like, the whole uh, euthanasia debate, like, people killing themselves for yeah. compassionate reasons, or or I guess not, yeah, I guess kind of like if they're in unbearable pain. It's an interesting question, too, right? Because, like, it's very hard to say that, oh, like, there aren't any people out there who are living in unsufferable or insufferable pain. And then what is the compassionate thing to do? But on the other hand, it's there's something that goes against your human instincts to say that that like it should be easy to kill yourself. Yeah. There's I don't know, there's something there. I I've always found the the euthanasia arguments like a little silly, right? In in terms of people being against it, right? It's like if somebody is, you know, in really unbearable pain and just wants to go, like let them go. Yeah, it's a it's like a very libertarian viewpoint on it, but I I totally agree with you. Well, it's very selfish. It's kind of like when you see really old people who've had you know, a really bad stroke or something and they're just vegetables and their family is keeping them alive despite them being you know, gone just because the family can't bear to let them go. It's like that's kind of cruel and really selfish. And yeah, if you have a sober, you know, elder relative who wants to go, like, why can't they have the freedom to do that? Right. It's also I mean, it's, it's kind of like a lot of these prohibitions where it happens anyway. Right. Right. Exactly. Like people do it. They just have to do it, you know, in shadier, more illicit means. It's like you got to find a friend who's a doctor, right? And get the high dose of morphine or whatever you want to use to to go out. You can't do it in a nice controlled environment. That's exactly the point. It's going to happen anyway. Yeah. And you're just making it more shady by making it illegal. I wonder if part of it is like an insurance thing. It's hard to get insurance companies mm. to cover it. Because, you know, I, I imagine they don't want to subsidize something that kills their customers, right? That would make sense, yeah. Like, they, they would rather subsidize a hospice care or something where they can keep billing, <laughs> keep making money, uh, as opposed to something where they, uh, they they lose all of their recurring revenue in one, in one go. It's kind of a fucked up reason, but... Although, I guess the insurance company would want them to go or get... Well, they'd want them to get better, ideally, because then they can keep paying. Oh, yeah, good point. No, the insurance company doesn't want to keep paying for hospice. That That's the opposite of what they want to do. They want to not pay for that. Yeah. So maybe it's the hospitals. The hospitals don't want it because then they lose money. Right. There could, that could definitely be the case. I believe that. <laughs> that could definitely be the case. But yeah, you're right, though. Like, Well, the, the easiest example is the, the vegetable one. Yeah. Yeah, you see that happen, and, and it's really on the family you know, they're just doing that so they don't have to deal with the pain of, of losing the person. Well, and even if they're, you know, not deliberately trying to uh, keep them alive, you can't, like, hasten their death at all, right? Right. Like, I mean, my my grandmother died earlier this year, and she had a really bad, I think, stroke and then fall, and, you know, she was very clearly not going to recover, but you kind of everybody had to just sort of wait around for her to pass. And it mm. took her like a week and it was clear that she was, you know, one, not there, but two, still suffering. 
Mm, so the worst of both. Yeah, and it seemed kind of inhuman. It's like, all right, we're going to let, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to even say like her, but this, you know, still living person or thing. It's like hard when somebody's in that state, right? But there's clearly suffering going on and she's clearly not there. So, but you can't do anything, right? And doctors are being like super alert to watch for any indication that anybody did do something. Hmm. And that just like it's really? yeah, it seems kind of wrong, right? It's like we're just gonna let this person's body starve to death. Um, or what do you mean by they were watching to make sure no one did anything? There was, I mean, we usually, I mean, she was kind of like getting checked on very frequently, like while we were there too. Yeah, and I got the sense that they knew there would probably be some desire to like speed things up. You know, for her sake, not for any nefarious reasons. Right. Of course. Yeah. But they and they had mentioned it, too, that they had to be really mindful of the painkiller dosing in particular, because, you know, we could see she was in pain. And so we kept asking them to give her more painkillers. And they were like, well, we can't give her too many because if there's, you know, any analysis and her levels are too high, then it might look like we, you know, facilitated suicide or something like that. And, you know, that puts us at a lot of risk. And I'm like this you know, this person's in pain, right? It's kind of ridiculous that you have to care about that kind of compliance right now. Yeah, there might even be some level of uh, malpractice and oh, I'm sure. getting sued and, yeah, stuff that they're worried about on their end. Yeah, because I, I can imagine, too, a situation where you've got one family member who wants to, you know, help their relative, you know, get through that tough process, but then another relative who's, like, clinging, you know, intensely on keeping them alive, and the one relative speeds things up and then the other relative sues the hospital for letting it happen, right? That could definitely come about. Cause an issue. Yeah. Well, and I think the hospital would probably be on the line to a certain extent then. And so even if it's kind of a morally difficult and, you know, I, I would say bad thing to do, they almost have to optimize around minimizing liability, which means preventing any chance of uh, people taking their lives into their own hands. Right. Which is why the debate is so tough i guess because on one hand i mean you're right like on one hand it's understandable that you know the hospitals or or all the other stakeholders i guess would be concerned about liability and would want to sort of minimize their liability so they're going to do everything that's rational to do that but then on the other hand when you think about it from the patient's perspective it's also tough to argue against you know especially if it's voluntary yeah like if they had put in their will or in, in some type of legal document that, hey, if I'm ever in this situation, do this. I don't think that's legal to do, right? I could be wrong about that, but... Uh, you can tell them they can't recover you. So you can have, you know, a DNR, do not resuscitate order, which basically means that if you get into any vegetable like state, then they cannot try to save you. They cut off food and water and everything and let you die. So then that part is legal, I guess. That part's legal, but it's a it's a non-action, right? They can do like negative actions, right? They can Ah, yes. I see what you're saying. I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, they can choose not to keep you alive, but they can't choose to help you die. Right. Got it. They can't take any positive action exactly. to make that happen. Okay. That makes sense. In most states. There's some states where you can. I think Washington, maybe. It's it's one of those northwest states. Those hippies. No. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of the ones where the weed's legal. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I was like, what's the overlap between the two? Yeah, exactly. You can you can smoke a joint and exit the world all in one day. 
I think I said that to someone earlier today where I was saying that the states with the most logical beer laws are also the states that have legalized weed. I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, California, Washington, Colorado, they're all pretty good for the beer industry, like in terms of simplicity of the beer laws and like least amount of Byzantine legal structures. (laughs) Uh, But then they like, yeah, then you have the other states, which are the ones that are furthest away from legalizing weed are also the most crazy legal structures for beer. So there's some overlap there. So what states would that be? Like Mississippi, like Texas, Pennsylvania? Yeah, Nebraska, Texas. Although Texas is like, Texas is weird because there's, seems like there's, it's very polarized. Yeah. Like there are some things which, like beer is actually, I don't know, obviously I'm just like closest to that. So I see that the most, but there's um, like on the surface right now, it's really hard. But then if you look a little deep, like to do direct distribution and, uh, there's a lot of like absurd laws, but then if you look a little bit deeper, there are like all kinds of lawsuits against like to overturn that. And hmm. there seems to be a, like a bit of a legislative push and there are a ton of small breweries who are providing some lobbying. So yeah, Texas is a weird case. It's like the ones where it's like hopeless are like Mississippi, Alabama, um, Nebraska is apparently ridiculous, which we haven't, we haven't done anything there, but from what I've heard, it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's like just certain states. I think it's probably like five or six different, either deep south or certain parts of the Midwest. I feel like Texas is more cowboy conservative. You know, Mm. it's less about like, oh, these things are bad and no, we should do them. And it's more about like, keep the government off of my life, right? Yeah. Almost more more focused on the like, just get out of our business, stop taxing us, stop telling us what to do. Like, we're Texas, fuck you. Right, yeah. (laughs) We are the Republic of Texas. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I feel like, you know, Pennsylvania or some of those states, it's like, oh, no, don't let the children get hooked on drugs. That's going to be... Right, it's much... Yes, you're right about that. It's like more nanny state style. Yeah, nanny state. That's a good analogy. Yeah, like we want to tell you what to do as opposed to... I think you're right. Like Texas, the attitude is not, we want to tell you what to do. It's more just don't tell us what to do. Yeah. (laughs) exactly so yeah i could see like texas isn't they get a bad rep i think and some of it's justified but it's not as from my perspective not as bad as uh some of these other states i could be biased from austin too i I understand the rest of texas is not quite like that but that's true the only places in texas i've actually been are austin dallas and houston and all three are big cities so and pretty liberal now too Right, exactly. Austin and Houston, at least. I don't know if Dallas is, but I've heard Houston is. No, Dallas felt pretty, like, it seemed it seemed pretty diverse and... Progressive, yeah. It wasn't Texas from, like, it wasn't the caricature of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Except the streets were really wide, so people, you know, could accommodate pickup trucks, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, so going back to the book, uh, he has a section here where he goes, Living naturally is never easy. You continue making the gestures commanded by existence for many reasons, the first of which is habit. Dying voluntarily implies that you have recognized, even instinctively, the ridiculous character of that habit, the absence of any profound reason for living, the insane character of that daily agitation, and the uselessness of suffering. And I don't know, that summed up for me the the absurd, I think, of what he's really getting at, which is you sort of made this um, recognition of the state of things, right? It's almost like a switch goes off, like you're, what is it, you've been red-pilled? Yeah, you've taken the red pill? yeah. It's kind of like that, right? Where once you see this, it's hard not to feel like things are meaningless for a minute. And then until I think, uh, I would say um, other things we've read have come to similar conclusions, but 
This one obviously does it the most explicitly, but this first sense of there's no meaning. And that could come from somebody who grew up religious or came up with like a religious viewpoint and then realizes, you know, or, or it becomes not religious or, or an atheist or, or just realizes that maybe what they had thought God was isn't quite true. People have, there's all sorts of reasons. Whatever your sort of sacred belief was that gets shattered um, can lead to this sort of meaningless state. And it's, it may also made me think of like the chaos that Jordan Peterson talks about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get flung into this chaos and that feeling is kind of, uh, you're, you're floating. That's the, the best word I've, I've found to describe that feeling. Yeah, well, and it kind of relates to what we also talked about in Homo Deus, where there's yep. this notion that the mind is really an illusion, right? There's not there's not that much compelling reason to think there's anything special going on up there. It's just the brain doing its thing, and that consciousness might not really be this driver or have much control, but it's just sort of along for the ride and observing and kind of like a figurehead who thinks it has a lot of power. Oh, yeah, you're totally right. Right? Yep. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, thinking about that too much is kind of like, well, shit, you know, if that is true, then, you know, what is the point, right? And and not even what is the point, but almost like, like who, it sounds weird, but like who is the point, right? Like, right. Well, like elephant in the brain is related to this too, right? Yeah. It's like, you have no idea why you're doing most of the things you're doing. Or who you even are. Or you even are, right? But you also <laughs> have this instinct instinctual desire to continue doing those things and continue feeling like you're making decisions and in control. And I mean, that really feels like characteristically absurd. It's just like, even talking about it feels stupid sometimes. And every time I try to bring this up at a dinner party with someone who hasn't listened to us talk about it for three hours, (laughs) good luck. (laughs) they, They just look at me like I'm insane. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, we don't actually make any decisions. Like our brain just does it. And we're kind of along for the ride. Like I'm not even having this conversation with you. I'm just watching it happen. And they're just like, what did you smoke before you came here? Yep, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) They're probably wondering like what you're on and yeah. And how can they get some? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I, I think that like that, that realization, I mean, for me, I've, you know, one, it's a really difficult realization, one that I feel like I'm constantly having to come back to and being like, you know, trying to grapple with it. But at least for me, it doesn't feel demotivating. It doesn't feel depressing. Like, oh, God, there's no point to life anymore. Right. It's more like, oh, cool. Well, I should just take all of these thoughts much less seriously because they're not really doing that much anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. I know we've had trouble talking about it even on some of the previous episodes, because when you start using words like I... Yeah. You know it's not a real thing. You're breaking the rule right there. Yeah, but you can't speak without using that. You know, it's like a... Strange loop. And even when I say you, right? Strange loop. Yep, strange loops. Yeah. For more on that, GEB episode... I think you can say you, because there is still a you. There is still a Neil. Yes. But who I am referring, or who Nat is referring to when he says Neil, is different from the Neil that you experience, right? Right. Well, that there's a uh, thought, ex- not maybe not thought experiment, it's more of an exercise where it says, ask your five best friends how they view you right, or how they would describe you to somebody else. And usually it's very different from what how you would describe yourself to someone else. And I think that's in the crux of it, right? Like you as an external person are observing maybe like the sum of all the different sub personalities that I hate to use that word, I guess, in this context, <laughs> but that I have. Whereas I'm observing 
you know, all the crazy in the mind conversation that happens as each individual person for themselves. Right. Yeah. It's so hard to talk about this. It's kind of weird, too, to think about that everybody else you're interacting with has all of that same crazy amount of chatter going on in their head that you do. Yeah. You almost can't think about that because once you start thinking about that, you like almost get paralyzed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably why things like solipsism are attractive because mm. it just seems, I don't know, on some level, it seems so absurd that there are all of these other people out there with their own unique experiences, just like mine, right? That right. it's almost easier to think that, oh no, it's just me in the world and you're all part of the simulation. Right. Is that the same philosophy that says every person is like a part of you also? Or is that a different one? Have you ever heard that one? There's like the thought experiment. I think it sort of is. It's like the reciprocal version of that. Yeah, it probably depends on your interpretation of solipsism. I think like the... The techno interpretation is that everybody else is just a automaton or something. Yeah, like or just part of the computer code, right? And you're plugged in yeah. as like a battery or something matrix style. And, you know, there's, you know, to you, there's no Nat. And to me, there's no Neil. We're just, you know, living out our little simulation. But I think like the old school version before tech was that everybody was really just like a figment of your imagination. Hmm. Uh, or sorry, everybody else's consciousness was kind of a figment of your imagination, but there were physical things there but you were the only one with like a unique experience, which seems kind of ridiculous on the surface. Cause like, how could everybody else function without it? If you can function or if you can only function with it, but right. That would, I mean, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, well, maybe not its logical conclusion, but you follow that thought out, then you start wondering if maybe you're also that. Yeah. And then everything is just determinism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it goes back to what we were saying before about there not really being any mind. Right. That argument's so hard. Yeah. Like the whole determinism versus free will thing. I don't, I mean, nobody's ever really come to the end of it, but I just, like, it doesn't help to not think you have free will. Like, it doesn't help to think that everything is deterministic. But then when you really dive into it, I don't know, you just can't reconcile the two. Well, I think you can in that there is a third option, which is that there is neither free will nor determinism. Ooh, okay, explain that. Well, because, and I get, it kind of depends on your definition of determinism, right? Because- okay there's like deific determinism that well there's a god who's just sort of set everything in motion and it's all happening according to his plan right and that's one version and and then there's like genetic determinism that everything you're doing is just you know what you were predestined to do based on your genetics and your body and situation and all of that is there really a difference between those two though no not really just sort of who you decide is the first mover right is it evolution or God? Right. But I think you can also have like a a non-free will, non-determinism, which is that, you know, your brain is still deciding to do things on some level, but it's not your conscious mind that's driving it, right? So there is free will, but it's not yours, right? Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> That's going to be a fun one to think about. Yeah, I think the trouble with that is that once you take free will out of the conscious mind, it kind of feels like it all reduces to some form of determinism, right? Right. Where it's like everybody in the same situation would have done the same thing, right? Given the exact same life inputs and everything that you had, right? And I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think the problem with that is that it assumes... It's like ultimately untestable. Yeah, well, it's untestable. And I think my biggest issue with it is that it assumes there's no randomness in the universe, which we know isn't true. Yes, that's a good point. Like, there's always going to be some amount of, you know, complete, you know, random unpredictability, even, you know, 
tiny, tiny things, and that will naturally affect any claims of determinism, which is why I like the, you know, the brain free will argument, Mm. because that kind of gets you out of both of them. Yeah, that's a good point. Man, this is a this is a very philosophical episode so far. I like it, which is makes sense because we're doing a philosophy piece. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing a book philosophy. Well, but and this this actually kind of feeds into this next uh, highlighted section we've got here, which is one of his challenges to the reversion to these ideas where uh, or aversion where he says that in man's attachment to life, there is something stronger than all the ills in the world. The body's judgment is as good as the mind's and the body shrinks from annihilation. We get into the habit of living before acquiring the habit of thinking. So we kind of have these desires that are at odds with each other, which is something that's come up a lot in a number of past episodes, right? There's this kind of like base animalian drive, right? It's like what your body wants to do, whether that's, you know, gorge on fatty snacks or like lie around all day or goof off or, you know, whatever. And then there's kind of like what the mind wants to do. And what he's saying, which I think is interesting, because I, I think a lot of other people that we've read from would disagree, is he says that the the body's desires are as good as the mind's, right? The body's judgment is as good as the mind. So there's nothing mm. inherently better about what you think versus what you instinctually want to do. I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I feel like that's part of the specialness of humans is that the, the cognitive layer can override some of the less useful physical drives the instincts yeah the instincts the animal brain the monkey brain i mean that's pretty much the only reason that we can do most of the things we can do right i mean imagine this is like a deal's favorite example right imagine piling 150 chimps into an airplane right that wouldn't go well (laughs) that would be a disaster (laughs) you know we we can do that because we've got this more cognitive layer that allows us to create these large social bonds and the stories and, well, all the stuff that was in Sapiens. And Sapiens, yeah. Yeah, how we can all agree on a story together. I think that our mental drive to cooperate is better than our physical drive to, you know, kill or fuck basically everything else in our environment, right? Yeah. That seems like superior drive. So I'm curious why he framed it this way. So I wonder if, uh, yeah, and so much of this is also like uh, definitional, right? So. I mean, dogs, I think you gave me this example once where I said, imagine packing 150 dogs into an airplane. Yeah. And but then I think you gave me the example that there are large packs of dogs that coexist. Yeah. Uh, Costa Rica. Yeah. Costa Rica. Yep. There's the the dog refugee in, or dog refuge in Costa Rica. It's just like a giant park with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dogs running around free in the wild. But I suspect that wouldn't work as well if they didn't have plenty of food. Right. So if they were in a scarce environment. Yeah, and if it was some of their pre-established territory. Because I think where dogs can get confrontational, like dogs, right, not wolves and stuff, is when their human's territory is encroached upon and when they're short on food. Mm. Because, like, I think dogs dogs get along much better in neutral territory than, you know, owned territory, which is probably why dog parks can be fairly amicable, but taking dogs to other dogs' houses can sometimes be testy oh interesting yeah that makes sense it was actually i was just oh go ahead oh i was just gonna give a funny example where it's uh because i'm staying with my parents in dc right now and they've got a little dog about pepper size too and they like the first day they were kind of well 
Cleo was kind of like not super happy about Pepper being here and was, <laughs> you know, barking at her a bit and kind of nipping at her. Uh, but then especially when my mom came home from work, Cleo really just got super defensive and was yelling at Pepper if she got too close to my mom. It was interesting to see because she was... How territorial. Yeah, well, I, she was 90% less, I would say, like aggressive when my mom wasn't around. But then once she was there, it was like the just dial got turned way up. Right. So there's definitely a contextual element there. Mm. But I mean, back to the point, though, right? It's like humans can kind of override some of that stuff to a certain extent. We can't always do it. Right. That's why you see, uh, I mean, pretty much every violent crime is in some way a failure of the cognitive mind to override the more base animalistic desires. But we can occasionally do it. But we can occasionally do it. We can do a pretty good job. You know, people make it make it through their whole life without going to jail for killing someone. So that's saying something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually saying so. <laughs> I, I said it as a joke, but then I realized like that's actually kind of cool. No, it is though. I mean, think about a place like New York. Yeah, like how many people are packed into that one island? Eight million people, and most of us have never killed someone while living there. Like that's actually a pretty big deal. Yeah, right. That like somebody pisses you off on the subway and you don't just immediately murder them. Right. <laughs> right. Like you go back. I don't know how many thousands of years, but not that many. And that would probably be a fairly acceptable thing to do. Dude, there were duels in this country, like, not that long ago. That's true. Yeah, like 200 years ago. (laughs) You know, you look at Japan 150 years ago, all right? Like, somebody pisses, you know, somebody's rude to you, you just stab them with your sword. That's cool. Yeah, and if you're Musashi, you're undefeated. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to learn how to be like Musashi, Book of Five Rings episode. Book of Five Rings, yes. Or you could read the uh, the very long novel, or you could watch the Westworld episode. Are you through that? Nope. Are you done with that? Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through it. I've been halfway through it for about a year now. And yep. uh, making progress. We'll see. We'll see if that needle moves anytime in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> it's very long. No, I don't know. This is this is going to be a tangent for sure. But I find like with these very long novels, I kind of need time where I'm just just reading that for a significant amount of time. I can't like jump in and jump out yeah. for, you know, 15 minutes at a time. Well, it's really hard when you because you have to remember all the names. Yep. And especially with books like Musashi, where all the names are in Japanese, like I, that's hard. You know, you just don't remember foreign names as well. I've had this problem whenever I tried to read, you know, the great like Russian books and things like that. Oh, I'm having that problem right now. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. I'm trying to read War and Peace. Oh, yeah. And I'm like 200 pages in, but I need to probably start over just because all the names are like they're all blending together. You need a character map. Yeah. I can't remember the Russian names nearly as well as if it was like Anglo-Saxon names. I'd remember it much more. And Russian names in particular, I notice in those books, they give each character like four names. Yes, because they have nicknames. Yeah, they have nicknames and then they have like proper names versus social names or something. Yep. There's like all these conventions around that. A friend I have who who actually told me to read this book, he finished it maybe in like three months and he told me to keep a notebook or like at least a page of notes just to like keep track of the names. So just if, just for all the nicknames, right? <laughs> so you could say, oh, this person is the same as this person, not a different, not a totally different person. <laughs> yeah, because that you're right. That gets really confusing. So the, the nice thing, though, is that for a lot of those books, Kindle has uh, X-Ray set up. So if you're reading it on Ooh. Kindle, you can actually highlight any name you come across and it will show you all the other parts in the book up to where you have read that that name has come up. That's awesome. Yeah, you can like jump back to those scenes to refresh your memory of who that character is. And that's exceptionally useful for those long books. I think I'm just going to get the Kindle version. 
forget this physical copy I have. Yeah, that was really the only thing that was getting me through Musashi because a character would disappear for 100 pages and then show back up and I was like, all right, who is this person again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm way, like, I'm unacceptably behind on Game of Thrones, but that was happening to me on Game of Thrones as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's just so many characters. Although when you're physically viewing the characters on a like a show, mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier because you can have a name. Yeah, you've got a visual component. Right. Well, that's why I really like those YouTube videos where they summarize everything that happened at the end of the episode and in past episodes. Mm. Like uh, Emergency Awesome. Have you watched any of his stuff? No. He does really good 10-minute rundowns of each episode of major shows, including Game of Thrones and Westworld. That's really helpful. All of the Marvel movies and a lot of stuff like that. And he basically just like saved me on remembering what happened in Westworld two years ago. <laughs> I was like, great, I can spend 60 minutes rewatching your videos and not have to rewatch the entire first season. So that's going to be very helpful. That's a much more efficient use of your time. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Yeah, he had this one quote in this. Now back to the book, by the way, this is not a tangent. <laughs> it's not about Westworld. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> this is um, he just he kind of addresses the meaninglessness of the routine. Mm-hmm. I really like the section. So rising streetcar four hours in the office or the factory meal streetcar four hours of work meal sleep and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, according to the same rhythm. This path is easily followed most of the time. But one day the why arises and everything begins in that weariness tinged with amazement begins. This is important. Weariness comes at the end of the acts of a mechanical life. But at the same time, it inaugurates the impulse of consciousness. He kind of views that as a waking up. Yeah. Did you get that sense as well? No, that was exactly the sense I got, which is that some of this consciousness of absurdity requires, you know, this like stepping out, right? Like taking a higher level view. And especially if you're living this kind of very automaton life where you're yep. just working eight, nine hours a day, you know, commuting in, commuting out, eating, sleeping, you might never really like step back and look at what you're doing and think about it. Right. It's most obvious with the routine work, but I could also see this for someone in school. Yeah. I had that woke moment. I feel like when I was in school, just that absurdity of what am I actually doing here? Well, and the weird thing with it too, is that it doesn't last. I find, you know, I'll just sort of have it every now and then where I've been working like really hard for and it could be like, it could feel like weeks too. And then I'll look up and sort of be like, whoa, who was doing all of that, right? You have that moment of clarity, so to speak, where you're like, you know, why am I doing this stuff? Like, who is doing right. it? Like, where have I been? Uh, which are all sort of strange questions to ask. But then you get sucked right back into it pretty quickly. And the consciousness of it goes away. Right. Especially the busier you are. Right. I've noticed it's, you don't have time to think about this kind of stuff. Have you seen that movie uh, Click with Adam Sandler? Yeah. It's kind of like that because, you know, if you remember in the movie, he, uh, you know, he gets the remote that lets him basically screw with time in his life. And every time something starts to happen that he doesn't want to deal with, he just fast forwards through it. And then he like fast forwards through, you know, the, the remote sort of learns his preferences and starts fast forwarding for him. And so he, you know, fast forwards through a fight with his daughter once and then it fast forwards through like four years of her life because they're fighting right. for most of her teenage years. And then it like goes through his whole, I think, divorce with his wife or something because that lasts like a few years. And then it goes through like 20 years of him just mindlessly working at his day job. And, you know, in the course of an hour, he's basically lived his whole life because he's 
ended up fast forwarding through so many autonomous moments. Right. And it's kind of like that. That's definitely related. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think there are a lot of us who, you know, maybe an hour is too little, but you know, how much of your time are you actually conscious of, you know, of what you are doing? Right. Or of what you have been doing, right? How often do you kind of like sit and look at your life and say, you know, like, why am I doing this? Who is doing it? Or like, how much of the time am I actually in the driver's seat? Because, I mean, I know that most of the time I'm just doing, right? Oh, yeah. And not thinking about it. 100%. Unless you're recording an episode because every episode is making you think. That's true. It is making me think. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, stepping out. <laughs> I'm and just kidding. It's weird talking about it like this right now because it's kind of like, you know, when you talk about breathing, right? Okay, well, now you're breathing manually (laughs) you're not doing it automatically anymore and so by by talking about this i'm being made very aware of it but uh i mean even for this stuff right where you're thinking pretty heavily no i don't i I agree (laughs) yeah it's pretty easy to just get in that like go go kind of autopilot but not necessarily bad autopilot just like you're doing it and not thinking about it or you're not thinking about thinking about it Oh, I would say our best conversations are when neither of us is thinking about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's almost like a mutual meditation or something. I think there's, it's hard to put a word on it, but I think you know what I mean. It's, we've definitely had conversations where we're in the zone. Yeah. And then you look up and it's been two and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) It is autopilot though, in a way. Yeah. Oh, very much. Because you're not, you're not thinking about it. Now I'm thinking about it. Now, yeah, now we're thinking about it, right? <laughs> but no, it's like inner game of tennis. The, the biggest challenge is getting out of your own way. Right. And, and that's maybe the challenge here is that sometimes getting out of your own way is a good thing, right? Oh, 100%. There would be considerably more suffering if you were consciously aware of the absurdity of your life for all nine hours of the day at your factory job like you probably couldn't do it yeah i mean that is not a desirable fate right so yeah i think in some ways it's good and and perhaps that's part of what he's getting at here right is that if you're only satisfied with your life in the moments when you're not thinking then maybe your life is not worth living because it's that wariness where the consciousness comes in and you recognize how crazy it is that you're just doing the exact same thing day in day out following this routine and and to what end and to what end right and you know what's the point of that like why are you doing it well i think he even says it here where oh yeah here it is so he says he feels within him his longing for happiness and for reason the absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world so we have this sort of inner longing for meaning and i I guess identity and all of the things that i would say that maybe in for some people right religion in the past had answered And then in this, in like our modern world, sort of, I don't want to say post-religious, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it is um, to a large degree, or at least the most that it's ever been. Much more secular. Yeah, it's much more secular. And I would say even the people who are religious are viewing it, and I can't speak obviously for everybody who's religious, but like, I would say some of the people I know who are religious, it's not the same type of like, un, I hesitate to say unthinking belief that people might have had in the past. It's like a more nuanced view of, of religion than just believing like there's a person in the sky kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know how to put it. Like people are more woke. <laughs> for lack of a better lack of a better way of putting it. They're, they're more red-pilled. Yeah, like well, and it's hard not to be. And in some ways too, I would say some people have turned to maybe science to answer some of this, but science doesn't answer the why. You know, science answers like the how. Yeah. And the what, but it doesn't answer like why do like why does the universe exist? Well, and that was kind of uh, Harari's point in Homo Deus, right? Is that science and religion kind of have to stay out of each other's lanes. 
because science can really never say, you know, why or what is good or why do you, you know, what is good? How should you act? um, Why live? Like what is meaningful? And religion can't really say anything about, you know, evolution and genetics and a lot of stuff that it, it tries to claim understanding of. And so right. that that is actually, I mean, probably even more so now than in Camus' day, I think there is a general, I don't know, like nihilism maybe that comes from being secular where you lose some of that greater meaning for living, right? You're, you're no right. longer part of this great global uh, religious community, or, and there's not really nearly as much nationalism or anything anymore. So I was going to say that next. Yeah, the nationalism part is also like going away in some parts of the world. Yeah, it's like, what are we a part of then? Which is probably why you see so much rallying around these internet figures and internet communities, right? Like Jordan Peterson's a perfect example of it, right? He's He has in some ways become like a new for lack of a better term, demigod among secular people who have no one else to look up to in that way. Yep. Because I, I think we long for some of that uh, ability to externalize the meaning in our lives and we'll thrust it onto the best thing we can find if we don't have a religion for it. I think a lot of people do it to uh, relationships too, right? Yeah. It's like the the over-obsessive mother who you know won't let their kid grow up out of the house because she's like projected all the meaning in her life onto them or that child. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody in like a romantic relationship who's just, you know, entirely obsessed and gets all of their meaning in life from that relationship. I think it naturally gets projected onto something. And I think without it, then you'd probably do feel even more like, okay, life is not really worth living. And I think that's the that's the fundamental nature of what he means when he says absurd the yeah. like the absurd. I think that's what he's talking about. It's this like dichotomy between there is no objective meaning, but then we have this innate longing and desire for meaning. And how do you reconcile those two things? Right. I mean he's got a great line or a few great lines about all of this, and it ties in a lot with what we've been saying, that there there is this problem with the mind and with meaning. And he says, you know, the mind's First step is to distinguish what is true from what is false. However, as soon as the thought reflects on itself, what it first discovers is a contradiction. Uh, Of whom and what indeed can I say, I know that. This heart within me I can feel and I judge that it exists. This world I can touch and I likewise judge that it exists. There ends all my knowledge and the rest is construction. For if I try to seize this self of which I feel sure, if I try to define and to summarize it, it is nothing but water slipping through my fingers. Right? It's uh, it's like yeah. the question of what does the mind do that the brain doesn't do? Right. And you you can't you can't come up with anything. Right. There there is nothing that it does. It is not there. But at the same time, we feel very sure that it is. We feel like we're experiencing it all the time, and that that contradiction is. I, I think. I mean, it's a very like strange loopy phenomenon. We can't step outside of it. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're always going to be stuck in that contradiction. A hundred percent. And I don't know if there's a way from within the system, right? Yeah. To solve that. We, we would need a higher level system, but then we would be stuck in the same thing there, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, this is very GEB-esque now that we're getting into it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of overlapping themes. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I mean, building on the GEB, he has this line further on in this section where he mentions that, you know, even science is not particularly helpful because... If through science I can seize phenomena and enumerate them, I cannot, for all that, apprehend the world. 
or I to trace its entire relief with my finger, I should not know any more. There's this emergent property to knowledge, and simply having all of the data is not the same as understanding, right? Like science can't explain for you just by showing you what the world is, right? There's like a layer on top of that that we can't really grasp with just seeing what is there. Yeah, exactly. It can tell you what is physically there, but not necessarily how you relate to it. Yeah, or why. Yeah, or even who you are. Yeah. I mean, going back to that part, it's, it can't really, (laughs) like we were just saying, this whole mind thing, like gripping what the mind even is. I like that analogy of water. Like it's like water dripping through your hands. It's like you can't, you can't hold on to it. Yeah. Like there's nothing, there's nothing there. And that's kind of what he's saying is the absurd, right? Because he says, what is absurd is the confrontation uh, of this irrational and the wild longing for clarity whose call echoes in the human heart. The absurd depends as much on man as on the world. At this point of his effort, man stands face to face with the irrational. He feels within him his longing for happiness and for reason. The absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. All right? We want to be happy and we want reasons for existing, but the world has basically nothing to offer us in that regard. Right. We can never find an external explanation for being, and so we either have to create one ourselves or i presume just accept that we will never get one right which is a hard thing to be comfortable with yeah although um then i guess he when he continues on he he basically gets to different examples after this is all chapter one basically chapter two he starts getting to like examples of what like the absurd life looks like like when you when you've accepted this premise yeah so what were the three things it was like revolt i see it here revolt freedom and passion right so i would say in some ways it's um is it nihilism is that the philosophy where you pursue no that's not the one where you're pursuing pleasure right or is that nihilism yeah that that's hedonism hedonism yeah in some ways this is related to that because he gives the don juan example right right and then the actor example which was uh hold on i'm just trying to find it here Oh, yeah. Actually, I like the actor example a little bit because uh, I like that the most probably of all his absurd man arguments, although the conqueror was pretty interesting as well. Uh, The actor one was really interesting because it's the it's the actor who recognizes that everything is ephemeral. So he's living he or she, I guess, is living an ephemeral life for ephemeral fame. So the fame is only going to be fleeting as is the role that they're playing. and, And then life, the life sort of ends at the end of that role. So you're kind of you're acknowledging that everything is sort of temporary. There's no meaning to it, and it's all going to go away. Um, you're sort of living in these minute universes that just end when the play ends. Because I think he was talking about plays. I don't think there were movies when he was writing. No. Yeah. Was, were there? No. It was definitely plays. Yeah. So yeah, because he said in those three hours he travels the whole course of the dead end path that the man in the audience takes a lifetime to cover. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect example of the absurd way we're all living. All right, we're right going through and you know the actor knows he's acting and he knows that there is not like an inherent meaning to the life that he's living but we're all essentially doing the same thing without that degree of awareness of what it is that we're doing but i think taking it one step further right it puts you outside of the system because you can you're like watching the actor do this yeah yeah you can kind of like see the whole absurd nature of it because you're on the outside whereas obviously for your own life you can't really get outside. Like there's no higher level from that that you can get out to. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it, that's highlighted well by the the conqueror example too. Yeah. Because it's sort of this idea that the the conqueror is really just like doing and taking action and fighting and 
invading and killing and is not sitting in the ivory tower thinking. And, you know, in some ways we respect the warrior, right? It's one of the kind of like archetypical human disciplines that we have a lot of respect for. But we also, you know, there's also this element of the the brutishness, right? That it seems clear that they're not uh, contemplating their life and it's not really a desirable outlook on one's life either, I think, is, is maybe what he's getting at in that one too. Yeah, there was also the, I mean, I saw the relationship between the conqueror and actually somebody in business as well. Oh, okay. Because I think there was something where he said, uh, like, he chooses action over contemplation. And there's something to that, right? There's like, there's something that's kind of depressing of if you're just sort of, as I think you use the word uh, or the term ivory tower. Yeah. Sort of like the, I think of IYI, the intellectual I- yeah, idiot. A lot of times where it, it's, you're not getting like the real world knowledge or the real, any of the action. And I think the woke conqueror is probably the, the adjective that if you attach it to that is it's, I think what he's getting at. It's somebody who is, you know, a warrior who's conquering, spending all their time kind of fully engaging in the world. Um, And you could substitute conquer, I think, in my opinion, for anyone trying to sort of do something in the world, whether that's business or, or something else, but just living a life of action with the awareness that, you know, there's no sort of like higher meaning that you're building towards that. This is kind of all you have, like the time you have on this earth is kind of what you have. Yeah. It's so hard to talk about this stuff. It's weird. <laughs> it is kind of weird <laughs> to talk about it. it. It makes you very, very self-aware, right? It's like you're, you're reading, you're talking about it. And it's kind of like, ah, oh, fuck, that's me, right? Yep. <laughs> exactly. It's that. And then, well, then I, every time I say the word I, I'm like thinking about it right now. <laughs> yeah, that too. I'm like, who is the I? <laughs> One thing I struggled though with, I guess not struggle, but something I've been thinking about more recently is that in some level, a lot of these observations are not necessarily reasons not to do stuff. Oh, totally. Because I you can I think you can hold both opinions, right? Like you can say, yeah, I mean it it would be good if we were more contemplative and didn't just, you know, mindlessly take action. But on the flip side, like flow is a good thing. And sometimes you want to just do stuff, right? Oh, one hundred percent. Like I think about it with uh frugality and stoicism a lot too, right? Where like, yeah, it would be better if you could just be happy with less and, you know, not obsess over making more money, right? Like, but it's also fun to strive after things and, like, accomplish goals and not just, like, try to be a hermit living in the woods. Yeah. there, There's kind of, like, both sides to a lot of this stuff. And... Although I guess Seneca wouldn't say that, right? Seneca wouldn't say what? That you should be a hermit living in the woods. It really depends on how you read him. I think that the... Because if he did, then he definitely had no skin in the game. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he, he was definitely a walking contradiction for most of Stoicism. But like, I think if because I was looking at my notes again on it recently, because I tweeted something that was like Stoicism and minimalism are great philosophies for people who don't want to feel bad about giving up on their goals. And then a few people responded saying like, no, I think Stoicism says you should go after your goals. And I was looking at my letters from a Stoic notes, and I don't think that's what it's saying. I think that's just like the Tim Ferriss reading of it. Or it could be like uh, like your own mindset is reflected in what you're reading. It could be one of those things too. Yeah, probably. I, I see that increasingly with a lot of different a lot of different books. Like you can talk to somebody about, well, like Jordan Peterson is probably a great example. Like you can talk to him about him to somebody, and they could have gotten something totally different than you did. Yeah, because I think there's so much there, and maybe maybe our minds like don't hold on to the thoughts that just we disagree with. <laughs> the confirmation bias. Exactly. Like yeah. I probably wouldn't have highlighted the parts of Seneca that were saying, oh, you should be a hermit 
and live in the woods, my mind would just be like, oh, yeah, forget that part. <laughs> like, it, no, it wouldn't have even consciously thought about that, actually. It would have just skipped over it. Yeah. And then I would have never thought about it again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe we just, like, pull out the stuff that we find or think is valuable from it. Because, yeah, you're right. That's totally possible. Uh, but, yeah, I always just view Seneca as not saying that. Whereas um, uh, Epictetus said some of that stuff. But, you know, he was a slave and it was a different... I mean, he at least would have had, I don't know if you can call it skin in the game, but at least some like real life experience of that. That's true. And he, he did stay poor for his entire life, I think. Yeah. Whereas Seneca was like the richest person in <laughs> in Rome, right? Or like one of the richest people. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, possibly like one of the richest people in all of history. Like He had an absurd amount of money. So so him and Jeff Bezos, or maybe maybe more than Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Good question. Like in terms of relative wealth, like percentage of all wealth. Did you see that thing that uh, if Amazon compounds at 7.5% per year, Bezos will be a trillionaire by the time he's 80? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not that much for it to compound at. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Although, what would the valuation of Amazon be at that point? Like, I, I don't know what percentage he owns of Amazon. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Would that mean they're like a $10 trillion company? Although that's possible. I mean, yeah, that's very like, possible. Between inflation and... I mean, and he's only 54, so it'd be 26 years and Amazon's only been around for 20 years or so. Something like that, yeah. So it could get to 10 trillion in that year. Yeah. Although I was talking to somebody, uh, oh no, I was talking to my dad about this earlier today. Like, So this is not Amazon that I'm talking about, but just about like some of the high valuation tech companies. And I was saying, what would be the one you would be least surprised didn't exist in 10 years? Let me ask you, what do you think? So which, which major tech company would I be least surprised to not exist in 10 years? Yeah, that if, if you like woke up in 10 years and X did not exist, you'd be like, oh, yeah, OK, like that's not crazy. Probably Microsoft. Eh, OK, I could see that one. That's a, that's not a bad answer. I, I said Netflix. Oh, Netflix is a good one, too. Yeah, because like, I don't know, I could see Netflix being beaten by Amazon or Apple or somebody uh, or somebody new even. Maybe. I don't know. I, I feel like I just like I can't see Amazon being taken out in 10 years and I can't yeah. see Apple being taken out in 10 years. No, I think those two would be hard to imagine them not being around. Although, to be fair, I mean, 10 years ago, Apple really wasn't a thing. That's true. Well, Apple was a hundred billion dollar company 10 years ago, but so was Nokia. <laughs> so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there was that I saw something on Twitter yesterday. It was like when the iPhone came out, Apple, like I think Apple was like 108 billion. Yeah. And Nokia was like 126 billion. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I think like Nokia is like not, does it even exist anymore? I don't think so. I don't even know. I haven't heard about them for a long time. <laughs> and then Apple's like a trillion dollar company. So yeah, Google, I would be surprised, too, if Google didn't exist in 10 years. Yeah, that would be surprising. So Jeff Bezos has 17% of Amazon still. That's amazing. That's a lot. That is so much. So then it would only have to be like, what, like 5 trillion around that, somewhere around there, five and a half. Yeah, something like that. For him to have to be a trillionaire. I could see that in 26 years. I mean, it's kind of crazy how many companies they own now. Did you know they own IMDb? <laughs> what oh yeah they do yeah. you're right it's right there i didn't know that if you go to if you go to imdb i think it says it's an amazon company that's crazy and i was i had no idea they bought it in 98 i think that's amazing well and they've also got alexa the ratings site you know for 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 like rating other websites oh they own that too i think they, they probably bought it just because they needed the name <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah, well, they own Twitch. They own Twitch. They own Zappos. Yeah, they own PillPack. I think they bought PillPack recently. Yeah, PillPack. They own Audible, obviously. Kiva Systems. That's a big one. Goodreads. And then he's an investor in Twitter, Workday, Stack Overflow, 
Basecamp, Domo, Business Insider. Like he owns the Washington Post. The guy's busy. Yeah. Well, you got to do something with that money. Yeah. Living Social they invested in. Oh, wow. Damn. Good for him. I wonder if that's is that's as an angel or was it as part of like a fund or I'm sure he like backs certain funds. I'm sure he's an LP. Yeah, he's got he's got some I think he's got a fund called like the Bezos Group or something like that. Mm. Okay, we're we're way off the book. Let's get back. <laughs> That's why people listen to this show is the tangent. I know, I know. So they can learn <laughs> random things about Amazon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could also see the other one. I could see, but they're not really like a. They're not in the same category. But I could also see Tesla not existing in ten years. Really, I'd be surprised, but I could see it. Like I wouldn't be like ridiculously shocked. Actually, yeah. I, in ten years, Tesla will either be like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billion dollar company, or it, it will be gone. Right. It'll either be like the most popular company. Like it would, yeah, exactly. Like it's going to be somewhat of a binary. I would be very surprised to see them not like either cease to exist or be, uh, yeah, as you said, a massive company, like on the order of Amazon kind of yeah, just in transportation. Like if they get their transportation network, like that autonomous transportation network, then that's game over. I think that'd be huge. Yeah. <laughs> Last sidebar on this, but it gave me a lot of joy for, uh, to see all those people who shorted Tesla just like lose their shit after the uh, earnings announcement. <laughs> but the earnings were not good. That was the best part. No, they weren't good at all. <laughs> the earnings were bad, but then, but yeah, I think it was the guidance that they were going to be profitable. Yeah. Because yeah, that they reiterated that they're on track to be profitable next quarter. <laughs> yeah, their price went up like 15% almost. Yeah. It's amazing. My dad is not like a long-term believer in Tesla, but he bought Tesla stock just right before the earnings announcement because he was like, <laughs> he's like, I'm pretty sure regardless of how this goes, Elon Musk will figure out how to make this lead to a rise in stock price. <laughs> he's like, whether the numbers are good or bad, the stock is going up. Stock is going up. So, Knowing Elon. Yeah. Yo, he's, he's a master at that. I think he's he's a genius from that perspective, for sure. And obviously, like, a technical perspective, too. But yeah. because if you think about it, Bezos did something similar, right? Like, Amazon was not profitable for so long. Right. And he just sort of had to keep... He had to keep the story and the, uh, like, the prize, like, the promise um, fresh every quarter. Because they've been a public company. Like, Amazon's been a public company since the 90s. Yeah, they IPO'd fairly early. Yeah. I mean, that was, they IPO'd back in the day when you did IPO early. Now nobody IPOs. Right, exactly. So that means he's had to deal with like these earnings calls and analysts and all the stuff that goes along with being a public company for 20 years before they really turn the corner. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's masterful. It's impressive. <laughs> to deal with that. Patience, serious patience. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's get back to what happens when you're worth a trillion dollars and you realize that life is meaningless. Yes, exactly. You know, we, we, we just read this line that we feel this longing for happiness in reason and then absurdity is born of the confrontation between our need and then the silence of the world. And he, in the next section, he gets into this contradiction, right? That we're either not free and God is all powerful and responsible for evil, or we are free and responsible, but God is not all powerful. And this like, contradiction has never really been resolved but the right. the movement sort of philosophically that you know was uh, i think a big part of nietzsche's work is that we have in some ways killed god in becoming god ourselves right that we're taking that power for ourselves and saying like no we are the arbiters of our fate we kind of decide what's meaningful and in doing so we uh we we do what nietzsche called right like killing god god is dead and kind of become god ourselves 
Yeah, or at least try to. At least try to. Yeah, that's sort of the goal is to, you know, not wait for heaven in the afterlife, but to try to create that eternal meaningful life here on earth by trying to become godlike ourselves. Which I think, I mean, that it goes back to what we were saying before too about how with the rise of secularism, we're searching for meaning and stuff in other places. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the longevity work reflects this, that we, we've killed God, and so now we need to become God, right? We need to live forever, make ourselves immortal, upload our brains into computers, all of that. But it's basically the same myths with a different packaging, right? Right. So that's where the myth of Sisyphus comes in, right? Because he, Sisyphus was, didn't he defy death? I think that was like, let me see. Yeah. Uh, so the myth of Sisyphus or the legend of Sisyphus he defied the gods and put death in chains so that no human needed to die. When death was eventually liberated and it came time for Sisyphus himself to die, he concocted a deceit which let him escape from the underworld. After finally capturing Sisyphus, the gods decided on his punishment for all eternity. He would have to push a rock up a mountain. Upon reaching the top, the rock would roll down again, leaving Sisyphus to start over. So that was from Wikipedia, that summary of the myth of Sisyphus. But I think that's exactly it, right? So I think Camus is saying that we are all Sisyphus now, that we are trying to defy death. And in doing so, we're losing sort of that eternal, like the right to go to heaven kind of thing. We're just, we're sort of stuck in this absurd, meaningless task of life. But that I I think he views Sisyphus as being the absurd man or the absurd hero almost of a man who, despite this meaningless, infinite sort of task that he's confined to, he continues doing it and he's sort of accepted that right did you get that sense as well i think he actually says that outright exactly he's got this he's got this great line here where camus says he is as much through his passions as through his torture uh saying he's the absurd hero his scorn of the gods his hatred of death and his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted toward accomplishing nothing this is the price that must be paid for the passions of this earth So by forsaking God and trying to live out an eternal life here on earth, we have condemned ourselves to meaningless repetition, right? Rolling the rock up the hill and letting it fall down. And that's kind of the the senseless toil that he talks about, you know, throughout the first parts of the book, right? Like we're doing this and we're occasionally conscious of it, but we're constantly trying to find meaning, but we never can because we have given up on god and tried to become god ourselves and because of that we're all suffering the same punishment of sisyphus where you know we're we're stuck in this meaningless repetition and that's kind of the extent of our lives now right so the choice is either to i guess to live a meaningful life you don't try to defy death you sort of i mean is he saying that if you don't want to have this fate you kind of you can't wake up Kind of just have to stay in the routine. Yeah, that was kind of the vibe I was getting was that he's saying that, you know, you kind of have to like stay unwoke, right? (laughs) Because once you're you're conscious of the absurdity of your life and you try to do something about it, you are trying to become like God, right? You are trying to create the meaningful life here on earth instead of, you know, blindly toiling out in the physical realm for, you know, paradise in the next one. And so... I think that, yeah, he is saying that you kind of, if you don't want to be like Sisyphus, then, you know, one, you should have stopped listening 80 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's in the text. It's in the actually, text. If you yeah. look at the book. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, and two, you, you like can't be aware or concerned of your struggle for meaning, right? Yeah. You kind of have to just blindly hope that you will get it in the afterlife. On the other hand, I wonder if, and I don't know if he's saying this, but this could just be my own interpretation, but that there is some meaning to the, the task itself. So focusing on the going, getting up the mountain, even though you know the mountain is pointless and you're going to have to get back up the mountain anyway, there's something to that. I think that's what we get to next. Yeah. Right, because that's definitely where he goes. Because where we are right now and what we just covered is very depressing. <laughs> right? yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, if you stop listening right there, you might be like, this is like the worst anti-suicide episode. <laughs> yeah, you can ever. you can either be like a blind worker bee, just do what you're told all of your life and never pick your head up. Or you can pick your head up and look around, but then be miserable and have a meaningless life for, you know, right. whatever years you have left. <laughs> oh man. But that's not that's not what we're getting at cuz <laughs> no. Like we said, there's a happy ending to this story. So, Kemu goes on. Which is funny because that's what that's what he criticized Dostoevsky for is having hope. Oh, leaving hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cuz I think he said they ultimate like his books ultimately find a path to hope and faith and thus fail as truly absurd creations. <laughs> well, I think with I think what he's criticizing with Dostoevsky though was the religion aspect. Yes, I agree. Right. It was sort of like an is there a God? And I think Camus is saying there's not a God, but there doesn't need to be for your life to have meaning. Yes, you're right. Because he, he goes on here and he says, it's during that return, that pause, that Sisyphus interests me. Right. So when he's pushed the stone all the way up the hill and now he's watching it roll back down to the bottom. Uh, he goes on and says, a face that toils so close to stones is already stone itself. I see that man going back down with a heavy yet measured step toward the torment of which he will never know the end. That hour, like a breathing space, which returns as surely as his suffering. That is the hour of consciousness. At each of those moments when he leaves the heights and gradually sinks toward the lairs of the gods, he is superior to his fate. He is stronger than his rock. There you go. Yeah, I mean, to me, what he's saying there is that the rock has to go back down, right? Like, right. it's falling back down no matter what. Like, that is the fate, but he is walking down, right? And so even though he's condemned to do this for, you know, eternity by the gods and he doesn't really have any other choice, he is still doing the walking, right? There is still some control. And in those moments, he is kind of like in control of his fate. Like, he has some agency again. Yeah, like he's choosing to to do this. And, well, maybe not choosing, but he's at least conscious of it. He's not unconscious yes. of the motions, right? Because Camus goes on and says, the workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and this fate is no less absurd, but it is tragic only at the rare moments when it becomes conscious. Right. So, you, you know, you can always have that moment of realization, and it you know again it only happens in those breaks for sisyphus it's when he's going back down the mountain for you you know it could be when you're you're tired and you've taken a break from work and you like step back but where it starts to get happier here is uh Camus goes on and says i leave sisyphus at the foot of the mountain one always finds one's burden again but sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks he too concludes that all is well the universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. 
Yeah, I really like that line. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. Yeah. I like that a lot. And pulling from the next paragraph we have here, you know, all of Sisyphus's silent joy is contained therein. His fate belongs to him. His rock is his thing. So even though there is this absurdity in this, you know, there's like nothing he can do about it. It is still his, right? Like it's still his life. It still belongs to him. And you, if nothing else, you still have that struggle and that can be enough to give your life meaning and make you happy, right? The struggle against absurdity itself is meaningful. Right. And it's like, did you tweet about this recently? Or maybe some someone else I follow did, but there's something just very uplifting about sort of tackling a goal. Like that's, it, it kind of goes back to finite and infinite games. Like it's like chasing a metric or chasing a ranking versus just like the horizontal thinking idea. Yeah. Like there's always something, you know, like on the horizon past where you are. That kind of seems related to this, right? Because you can never reach the end on the horizontal thinking idea. It's an infinite game. And in some ways, like infinite games don't necessarily have a point. Like there's no winning an infinite game. Just like there's no winning the pushing a rock up the mountain only to have to do it up, do it all over again. Right. The, the game itself is the reward. Right. Exactly. The act of pushing up the, the rock up the mountain, the process is sort of the. Yeah. Was I think you tweeted something about that recently, right? Somebody did. I, I may have. I mean, I've been thinking about stuff like that. I tweet a lot of things. <laughs> well, no, but I thought about that more recently because I feel like most of my goals, even the ones that are just on the month, like anything month to a year, it's like I either like don't hit them because I decide to go in a different direction or I like vastly surpass them or like they never end up being that good of metrics to shoot for but they are pretty much always useful as arrows to point at right yeah they're useful directionally yeah they're useful directionally not necessarily as like signposts and so I, i think you know as it goes to horizontal thinking right you know what direction you're pushing the horizon in but you don't really know what you'll find on the horizon right Right, or even what you're aiming. Like, you just know the direction the horizon is. You don't necessarily know, yeah, what's on the other side of it. Yeah, and I think some people, I mean, it's easy to set a goal and then be so steadfastly obsessed about it that you ignore other opportunities, right? I mean, kind of like happy accidents. If you're obsessed about studying one specific thing in your research, you might ignore these serendipitous discoveries that you make along the way and miss out on the bigger opportunities. Right, and there's something... I mean, there's something to be said to, and, and maybe um, as context, if you haven't listened to the Finite and Infinite Games episode, that's a, kind of what we're talking about here when we talk about horizontal thinking. That's We talk a lot about that in, yeah. in that episode. Um, but I think you even see this among, I'm, I'm sure you have peers who uh, might have set like different goals for themselves, whether monetary or like career title, like having like a certain title or just like setting, you know, some type of like materialistic type of goal and then working at it for you know, X amount of time, there's always a little bit of a letdown in that type of situation. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it'll feel good for a minute, but then it's not going to feel good, you know, for a week or a month or a year. Like it wears off. We have this ability to get used to uh, the things that, that we have. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's to Stoicism's credit, they talk about this a little bit, right? Where where you kind of will never be happy for, or, or actually before I say that, is that the Tim Ferriss interpretation? I don't know. Let's let's just say stoicism. <laughs> let's put a pin in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. My interpretation of stoicism, at least, says uh, is that it says some of that stuff, and where um, you know I, I think that kind of hits it on the head, where uh, you need to have 
it's more about the process as opposed to like a deathly focus on a certain goal. But the directional part is important because you won't really have a process unless you have a goal. Right. Like having, I know you had like the metric goal for your company, right? Like to have hit a certain amount of revenue in a certain amount of time. And, and that directional goal is really good. Well, but that, that's actually the example I was kind of thinking of because oh, okay. I, I think when I started the year, the goal was to get to like 250K revenue per month. And now the goal is actually like not that at all. The goal is to like stay at where we are and then transition or slowly, you know, switch from client projects to personal projects, right? Ooh, right. Yeah. Like we had talked about that. Yeah. yeah Cause if, if I blindly kept going after the, you know, we can get up to about a hundred K per month with the team that we have, but if we want to go above that, we would have to, uh, like hire a lot more people to work on the agency side. Right. Right. But to us, it's like, Oh, like we could also just take our skills and like grow our own sites and then, you know, get all the upside of our work instead of just giving away to clients. Plus this way we can just focus on the clients we really like working with some of the ones who listen to this podcast <laughs> and turn away people that we don't like working with, right? And just like have an awesome agency life while we build our own properties. And like, that's way more attractive. Right. So if you were blindly focused on just the revenue goal that you had set, mm -hmm. then you would never even, you know, sort of had the serendipitous opportunity that you're, you're looking at now. Exactly. But getting here required having that directional goal, right? It's like for the first part of the year, having that was great to strive towards. And then, you know, we hit a point where it was like, hey, you know, actually, this might be a more interesting direction, right? So I feel like that's where the goals can be useful. And I'm changing my annual and even monthly goals all the time. I'm pretty good at keeping my weekly and daily ones because I think that's a short enough time period to stay relevant. But yeah, I think all the directional stuff, you kind of have to constantly be be tweaking. Well, I think it's really dumb to just set a goal and then let it sit for a long time. Yeah. Like if you set a goal and just don't adjust it for five years, like I would just say that's not a smart thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend Kyle had a funny tweet about that where on July 1st, he tweeted uh, like, ah, we're halfway through the year. Good thing I'm exactly halfway through all of my 2018 goals. Right? Like, <laughs> stuff changes very quickly. And yeah. Well, also, the, the thing is, you're changing too, right? So yeah. you're, yeah, like who you were five years ago. Like, if you set a goal when, you know, like 2013, right? Like, you are not the same person as you were in 2013. So if you blindly stuck to that goal, you would probably be disappointed <laughs> right. when you reach that. Well, and, and going back here, right, the reaching the top of, the hill with the rock is not what makes you happy, right? You have to enjoy right. the struggle. And I think, you know, focusing on that directionality so that you always have a struggle that's meaningful to you is like a great way to think about work in general, right? Right. It's like, uh, I, I don't like, I don't really like most of Mark Manson's stuff, but he does have this one idea I like, which is that you should uh, like, don't try to yeah, what's the term he uses? He's like, don't try to not deal with shit. Try to find shit you don't mind dealing with, right? Mm. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, <laughs> I like that. There's always going to be shitty parts of any job. Like there's no job that's just fun and happy all the time. And so you have to find right. one where you don't mind doing the shitty parts, right? Yeah. Which is why like, I mean, any of the like marketing that focuses on, uh, well, like do this or live this nomad lifestyle and sit margaritas on the beach all day, right? It's like that actually doesn't sound that it sounds fun when you're like in the middle of like a work sprint or something yeah and you're just like you know you're just dying or lack of sleep or whatever like when every time you're like tired or struggling that sounds really good but if that was your existence like every single day for the rest of your life you it might be hell 
Oh yeah, wasn't that uh that was a uh, an episode of uh, Twilight Zone, right? Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite episodes. I think we've mentioned it on here before, where uh, yeah, the guy dies, and you know this this angel comes and meets him and says, "Oh, you know, it's time to go." And then he he gets to the afterlife, and the the angel's like, "You can have anything you want." And the guy's like sleeping with all these women and playing poker and gets this amazing house and. But, you know, every time he plays poker, he wins. Every time he uh, he was a bank robber, right? Every time he robs a bank, he gets away and the cops never catch him, right? He just right. gets everything he wants. And by the end of the episode, he's going crazy. He's like, you know, can you just, like, please like let me lose sometimes, right? Every time he rolls the dice, he gets the exact dice that he wants or he gets the exact roll he wants and he's going crazy. And then the, the angel basically says at the end, you know, like, what made you think this was heaven, right? well it's kind of like uh playing a video game with all the cheat codes on yeah it gets boring really quickly it gets boring so fast yeah Yeah, you need the struggle right and it'll i mean that seems to be what at least my interpretation of what he's saying in this sort of final part right his fate belongs to him his rock is his thing right yep that is his struggle that he at least has and we all have you know we have our own rocks and we can sort of choose how to feel about that struggle right and i think you can also apply this in microwaves um like i wrote a post last weekend uh just a short one about just something i'd been thinking about in relation to books Mm -hmm. that was kind of inspired by by this where uh i found for a while all the books i was reading were kind of like i already agreed with them yeah right so it was kind of like like mental masturbation in a way (laughs) right like i'm sure you've had that or like articles or yeah where you're just like okay i'm not really learning anything here but it feels good to read this and I, I don't know, I just had the, like epiphany at one point where I was like, everything I'm reading besides like the made you think books, right, are especially I notice it with articles more than anything else, because it's very easy to just click on those articles and read them. Yep. Um, things you already agree with. So, yeah, I was thinking about that. And, you know, you kind of can't get the growth unless you're challenged. Right. So reading a book that you don't necessarily agree with or that you're not sure if you're going to agree with or the challenges you've, you know, to think in a different way, it's not going to be easy or enjoyable you know it's not gonna be a popcorn book by any means but it's going to force you to uh, to kind of get outside of your comfort zone and i think that's the only way you can grow in anything whether it's reading or or even just like getting stronger or growing in your career like you just you can't keep doing the you need you need a rock you need a, a mountain to climb no matter what it is agreed i was thinking about that with like the jungle right like rereading it wasn't that easy when we covered that one yeah or even like beginning of infinity, like there were some things in there that really challenged like some of Taleb stuff. Yeah, that's true. It's and it feels good. Like uh, I mean, because we talked about it in Elephant of the Brain too, right? That moment when you read something that challenges some of your beliefs and you feel that kind of almost like violent negative reaction to it. Yes, that crony belief feeling. Yeah, exactly. And if you can identify that feeling and you know struggle with it, I think it's an incredibly healthy thing to do. Right. It's hard. It's Very really hard. hard. <laughs> and it feels bad at first. You know, like I remember in uh, in Beginning of Infinity, there was something he said that was the opposite of like the Lindy rule. And I got that feeling as I was reading that. And I was like, oh, this is so wrong. Like, why are we <laughs> reading this book? Maybe we shouldn't read this book. Then I was like, maybe I should just take a step back. And maybe he's right. Like, maybe there's something I hadn't considered. Yeah. But it, it's really annoying. Like, you get annoyed at the writer <laughs> when they say that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one one thing, I mean, and this is going to be like a month out of uh, the the gestalt when this comes out, I assume, but I'm going to mention it in case anybody remembers it happening. Uh, one thing I've struggled with that recently is, uh, did you see all the James Gunn stuff? 
the Guardians of the Galaxy director. Uh, yeah, is he the one who had like some of those tweets that he got fired from somewhere for having some tweets? Yeah, he got fired uh, by Disney from doing the Guardians of the Galaxy 3 movie because of the old tweets. And I was, you know, when that happened, I was like, that seems kind of ridiculous. Like, it was old, you know, he was trying to be a comedian, right? He's apologized for it multiple times before. Like, Disney knew about it. The people on the set knew about it. Everyone was cool with him. Like, Wait, so then how did he get, how did he get fired? Uh, because some, um, like, very far-right internet personalities dug up all of the tweets and then created, like, a public outrage thing ah interesting and just like we're posting it to all of their blogs and messaging like new york times and wall street journal and stuff and saying that you know like this is who disney is hired to like it was a very coordinated effort to destroy this guy's career oh wow but then have you seen the stuff the last few days with this new new york times editor i have not clicked on any of that okay but i saw i saw some people were talking about it what so yeah what what happened so yes new york times just hired this woman sarah jong I think just she's part of the editorial board, right? And now a lot of people are being like, whoa, you really can't hire this person because she has all of these tweets where she says, um, let's see, I can, I can read a few of them here, right? Uh, she's got tweets that say yeah, like- Yeah, I'm just, I Googled it. Yeah, white, white men are bullshit. Basically, where is it? Yeah, hashtag cancel white people. White people have stopped breeding. You'll all go extinct soon. That was my plan all along. Uh, dumbass fucking white people marking up the internet with their opinions like dogs pissing on fire hydrants. Oh man, it's kind of sick how much joy I get out of being cruel to old white men, right? It's like, these are, if you said this about any other race, that would be like very not okay, right? No. Um, yeah. But the, the thing that I've, I've been struggling with is, you know, I, I feel like the James Gunn stuff, it was wrong to fire him. But I feel like the New York Times should definitely fire this person if she's going to be an editor. I'm surprised they even hired this person. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, but then my question is, like, is that just me being biased? Was she also a comedian? No, 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 no. She was, okay. she was like a writer for Vice. She's not a comedian or anything. See, like the comedy thing, like that is a weird case because like a comedian is purposely trying to push the envelope like that. Yeah, it's kind of part of their job. And like if you took every comedian's act seriously like they're all then horrible people oh yeah but obviously like that's when we talked about this in one of the episodes like that's part of the power of comedy right yeah the elephant in the brain episode right it's like laughter is sort of a way of creating friendship right and camaraderie yeah but um but i see what you're saying where it's like is it just because this is like more against your viewpoint or something yeah that you're reacting this way it's like because i i know that whenever i see somebody tweeting like oh you know like white people suck i'm like I'm like, okay, sure, but if I tweeted black people suck, like that would really not be okay. Right. And you're not gonna get tweeted or you're not gonna get treated the same way for But I think that's a great like there's there shouldn't really be a distinction because it's like yeah. you're still putting every single person in a category into a group. Like, yeah, some white people do suck and some black people suck and some Indian people suck and like some <laughs> of every category. Some men suck, some women suck, like yeah, there's like some people in every category that suck. <laughs> well, that's a good test, right? Is if you changed out, you know, what race or gender or religion you're talking about, would it sound racist? And if the answer is yes, then it's racist, right? Yeah, exactly. Or then it's, you know, bigoted, right? If it's a, <laughs> right. a culture or something, right? Like, Yeah, like if it was like, uh, 
I don't know, like, uh, there's definitely some of the, like, extreme feminist side. Yeah. Right? Have you seen some of those, some of, like, the tweets on that side? It's yeah, like, well, it's like, oh, you can never trust men, right? And it's like, well, if I tweeted that you can never trust women, yeah. like, that wouldn't be okay, right? Right. For good reasons. Yeah. Or it was kind of like the, the Harvard discrimination thing, right? Where people seemed kind of not that upset by it. Right. Where they're like, oh, yeah, Harvard discriminated against Asians, whatever. Asians are smart. They're fine. Right. But if if an article came out that said that, like, Harvard kept out black students because they thought their personalities weren't good, like that would be a big deal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's basically the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. And then also to say the um, like, oh, they're fine kind of thing. Yeah. Right. You're like, again, you're bucketing every single person into a single category, which is like the like crux of racism in the first place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, but but I see what you're saying about your um, thinking that, oh, it's like it could be a crony belief, but maybe I also have the same crony belief. Yeah, but I don't think that it is in this case because they seem like different. Like, I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked at the second person, the New York Times person at all, besides for like 30 seconds just now. But it seems different just because like she wasn't a comedian. Right. Well, and she's a journalist, I think. And if you're editing the New York Times, that's. Yeah. Well, and also the fact that she was a journalist before it's because he at least has the excuse of like, oh, I was trying to be like, like, I'm a, I was trying to be a comedian. Right. So this is like, like, this is my act. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a that's a legitimate like uh, alibi. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, if she's always been a journalist, like I can't see a situation where those tweets are appropriate. Acceptable. Yeah. Anyway, we should we should wrap up the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're kind of at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we talked about the end. I think I just want to I think we should read this last section because yes, it's just so great. And I think we've covered pretty much everything. So we can probably just read this paragraph and then wrap up um, for the rest of men. He knows himself to be the master of his days at that subtle moment when man glances backward over his life. Sisyphus returning toward his rock. In that slight pivoting, he contemplates that series of unrelated actions which become his fate, created by him, combined under his memory's eye, and soon sealed by his death. Thus, convinced of the wholly human origin of all that is human, a blind man eager to see, who knows that the night has no end, he is still on the go. The rock is still rolling. Boom. That's beautiful. I know. I I love that last paragraph. It's so good. It's also so visual. You can just see it. Yeah. And it perfectly encapsulates how you can have meaning despite the absurd, right? Your rock is still rolling. You can still find meaning in this seemingly absurd repetition of events. Uh, And I think that's how this book ends on a hopeful note and answers the question of suicide, right? It says that, you know, no, even though life may seem absurd and meaningless, you can find meaning in the absurdity. Right. And in the struggle, you can find your find your rock. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think we so we were obviously struggling at times to talk about this book. So I would definitely recommend people read it. It's short, too. It's short. Yeah, it's short. And you have a different experience with reading it uh, as opposed to listening to, you know, to us talking about it. Of course, you should listen to us talk about it. But you get the you can sort of have that internal dialogue. Like, I don't know. I felt there was an internal dialogue when I was reading this entire book. Yeah, me too. I, I was thinking about it a lot as I was going. Right. It made me think. Ooh. <laughs> that there should be well, we still need to get, get our soundboard, but we should make a <laughs> custom sound for that. <laughs> like a wah exactly. wah. <laughs> but uh I mean we we did have some other thoughts about the book too that we discussed 
before this episode started recording. So for everyone who is supporting us on Patreon, first off, thank you as always. And second of all, uh, you will have some lovely bonus material to go with this episode. Yep. The ranks are growing. They are, yeah. For those of you who are not supporting us on Patreon yet, we do have a few benefits there. So if you're uh, at the at the first tier of uh, $5, $5 a month, so like basically what you would spend on a fancy Starbucks coffee. So if you think we're worth more than a coffee, we would love it if you supported us. Or half a New York beer. Or half a New York <laughs> beer, yeah. <laughs> a beer anywhere else in the country. Or uh, like one iPad game. Yep. Um, there's a lot of things that are $5 that I think probably provide you less utility than we do. So, Oh, yeah. It's less than a Chipotle. Less than a Chipotle, yeah. You can like starve for an afternoon to support your, your favorite podcast. Exactly. Practice fasting. Seneca would approve. Practice fasting. It's good for you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but yeah, so the, at, at that level, you get all of the bonus material. You get our notes for each episode. Uh, you get a community area to talk about the show with us. Updates on upcoming episodes, uh, Q&A topics for listener choice episodes in the future, and just anything else that we toss in there. And then uh, we've got a, a gold tier as well at $10 or more a month where you'll also get to hang out with us once a month for a, a one hour, you know, just like casual chat. It'll be all tangents. There'll be no book involved uh, where we can all hang out and uh, enjoy each other's company. I think by the time they listened to this, there would have been a hangout. Yeah, right? you'll, you'll have already missed the first one. Um, so you'll be able to get that recording, but you won't be able to, you know, join for it, but you will be in time for the second one. So, yep. uh, you should definitely check that out. And, you know, I, I think it is worth mentioning, you know, we, we've done this because we feel it is a better model for the future than advertising. I know that Neil and I both just fast forward through the ads on podcasts. <laughs> we don't like listening to them. We get it. Everybody wants you to buy MeUndies. Uh, and MeUndies are great, to be fair. Like, I'll give them that fair shout out. But I don't need to hear it on every podcast I listen to. So, you know, we, we would rather have it be completely sponsored by all of you. Uh, it lets us be more intellectually honest in what we talk about because we're not beholden to anyone. And, you know, it's, you know, that we don't have to like force in advertisements in the middle of the show, interrupt what we're talking about with anything besides our, our off topic tangents. Yeah, exactly. Besides our already uh, in frequent interruptions. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but they go with the, sh- they go with the show. Like they what the everybody, show. yeah, they're, they're on topic. Exactly. Like the feedback we always get about the tangents. And if you disagree with this, definitely let us know. But the feedback we always get about the tangents is that they are as far away as possible sometimes from the episode but we always find a way to tie it back yep so that's our skill we're just masters of sophistry like tying <laughs> together completely you know nonsense topics to some <laughs> you know so that's why i got the philosophy degree is that it allows me to make you know i mean we we really like doing this model i uh, i think that it's a better model for the future than just doing tons of ads uh, it lets us goof off more do our thing so definitely uh Check us out on Patreon. Support us there. There are other ways you can support the show uh, at madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support. We've got a few sponsors there. We've got a link through to Amazon where we'll get a cut of anything you buy. Uh, but we really want to, you know, we, we want to grow the Patreon community. So if you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could can hang out there, uh, support what we're doing, help us uh, continue working with the amazing Andres who edits all of these shows for you and cuts out our or tangent tangents <laughs> you guys you guys get the the main sidebar discussions but then there's also the fun stuff like you know when pepper starts barking and we have to pause <laughs> or 
when the, the printer starts receiving phantom faxes <laughs> and we have to pause uh and all of that gets cut out and the the audio sounds wonderful and buttery smooth and uh that's all thanks to andres who you know we're able to work with and in part thanks to all of you so let us keep doing that we appreciate it exactly but Although we have heard from some of you, you know, from even the people who are part of the Patreon, the Amazon link is a very low cost way to, uh, or actually free way for you to support the show. Yeah, completely free. Where, yeah, you can uh, just do your shopping through that. And uh, Jeff Bezos has enough money. So um, he won't mind the 3 to 4% that he has to give us. But yeah, you just click through the link. You do your shopping the way you normally do it. They don't charge you more if you do that. And it's a very low cost, very low sort of barrier to entry way to, to support the show. Ideally, you can do the Patreon and that. But we understand if you just do the Amazon link. And if you really want to support the show through Amazon, what you can do is like bookmark our link so that every time you go through Amazon, you go through us. And then everything you buy on Amazon, you're supporting us. And that'd be great. So yep, that's a good option. There's a few other ways. So if you go to madeyouthinkpodcast.com slash support, uh, we have links to some of our favorite companies. Um, that And we use all of these companies, so they're not just random endorsements. But uh, first, let's, I guess, talk about, because I just used their product, uh, Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. Yes. So you can go to kettleandfire.com slash think, or I guess you can use the code think as well. And uh, there's a variety of different packages that they've created for our listeners. So I think you get up to 30% off plus free shipping on your uh, bone broth order and it's delicious you can have it uh by itself i've been making food with it and it's amazing and it's good for you and tastes good and great job by the kettle and fire team yeah so then there's also uh perfect keto for all of your keto related needs more good products also wonderful products uh there is the four sigmatic uh, mushroom concoctions. We're usually having the mushroom coffee while we're recording. I had an iced one. It's wonderful iced. I was just going to ask, yeah, was it iced? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. And it, it mixes well iced. Uh, to be honest, a few of theirs don't mix very well in cold water, but this one really does. The Rishi one does. Those are the two that are kind of my go-tos. So highly yeah. recommend that. And then uh, also Cup and Leaf. So if you want to buy any tea, Ooh, uh, yeah. that's that's my tea company. Uh, they've got some. I've got some delicious stuff on there. I'd highly recommend the Milk Oolong and the Cream Earl Grey. Those are my two favorites. 10 out of 10. Yeah, you can check those out and you'll get 20% off uh, with code THINK. Actually, we've been drinking those tea. The last few episodes, I feel like we when we were in person, we were drinking those teas so yeah yeah those are the lapsong suchong they're delicious you know i should i should make a, a made you think bundle on the site oh yeah because that would be kind of fun just like our our two favorite teas that would be amazing actually yeah i should do that i'll try to get that up by the time this episode comes out i'll make a note right now you got some time that can be a rock for this week <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, i think other than that keep telling people about the show uh, it's the number one way that people hear about it you know, I mean, uh, to us, uh, we love seeing the tweets uh, when you guys are tweeting about the show or if you have questions or feedback. We, we love hearing the feedback. Actually, I, if you haven't listened to the episode that was uh, an interview with Andrew Yang, who is running for president as a Democrat on a universal basic income platform. Personally, I would just love to hear what you think about that format. So we've discussed having more interviewer discussion type of episodes with authors or or people who are knowledgeable about the topics that we're, we're discussing. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear what people thought about that format and if you'd want us to see us do more of those. Same thing with books. We love getting the book recommendations from people. I think I said that at the beginning of, of this episode, but I got this recommendation from a, a listener to the podcast. So 
uh, would love to keep getting more recommendations and you can let us know on Twitter. So I am at the rail Neil S and I am at Nat Eliason. And I think that is a great place for us to wrap up. So until next time, until next time, have a good one, everyone.